We're in 2 Corinthians 11, 1 through 6. I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness, but indeed you are bearing with me. For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit, which you have not received, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. For I consider myself not in the least inferior to the most eminent apostles, but even if I am unskilled in speech, yet I am not so in knowledge. In fact, in every way we have made this evident to you in all things. You may be seated. Well, number one, he begins by identifying the fact that they are listening to false messages. Look at uh, verse 4 there. He says, For if, I come, if, if anyone comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit that you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. And so we have to almost begin our exposition at the end of verse 4. Because at the end of verse 4 comes the critical point in Paul's thought. And that is compromise. Look at what he says. You bear this beautifully. Now we could read that and be a little bit confused and say, huh? It's spoken with irony. In other words, it's spoken almost as a rebuke. It's saying, you are bearing this beautifully. That would be another way that he could bring out the sarcastic nuance of the text. It's, in other words, it's an audacious thing. What an audacity that they would be putting up with false messages, in other words. That's what he's saying. In other words, the church and its slide away from Christ and its slide into apostasy first begins with compromise. And that's where it always begins. It begins with a subtle drifting. It begins with a subtle compromise in the heart. An opening up of yourself, of your mind, to, to continue with Paul's thought, to begin to even listen to the serpent's craftiness like Eve. You remember last week as we looked at that passage of, of Scripture, as we began to look at Satan's deception of Eve, as somewhere in the midst of that I said, oh, and by the way, Satan's first objective has already been accomplished, and that is, is to gain a hearing from Eve, to even begin the dialogue, to start talking about and start undermining the Word of God and the, the commandments of God. And that's what it always begins. It always begins with that sort of compromise and tolerance towards false teachers. Look down just a little bit here in the chapter, verse 16, because it seems like this compromise and this toleration of false teachings and false messages has sort of gotten out of control for the, uh, the Corinthians. It says again, I say, let no one think me foolish. If you do, receive me even as a fool, so that I may also boast a little. He says, what I'm saying, I am not saying as the Lord would, but as in foolishness, in, the, in, in, in this confidence of boasting. Since many boast according to the flesh, I will boast also. He says, for you, being wise, 
tolerate the foolish gladly. For you tolerate if anyone enslaves you, if anyone devours you, if anyone takes advantage of you, if anyone exalts himself, if anyone hits you in the face. He says, to my shame, I must say that I have been weak by comparison. That's how out of control it's gotten. They have so tolerated these false teachers and his opponents in Corinth that it's gotten to the point where they don't even respond to spiritual abuse. They've grown numb. They've just tolerated it for so long, they've already gotten used to it in, in a sense. In a sense. But how does this slide away from Christ? How does it work? I think Paul gives us three very practical things that we should consider. Number one, there's a falling away from orthodoxy. Look at the text, exactly how it's phrased. He says, if anybody comes and preaches another Jesus, that's the first clue. And then he says, whom we have not preached. In other words, it's a Jesus that is not accepted orthodoxy. It's a Jesus that was not apostolic. It's a Jesus that didn't originate with the original primitive preaching of the church. It's a foreign Jesus. It may be the Jesus of the Gnostics. It may be the Jesus of the Docetists who say that Jesus actually wasn't there physically, but he just seemed to be there like a phantom. It could be the Jesus of the Judaizers whose cross work was not sufficient to secure our righteousness so that you still must work and, and strive and try to merit your own righteousness. Whatever picture of Jesus people give, if it is not orthodox, if it doesn't originate from the apostolic preaching of the cross, then it will never lead to salvation. A different Jesus offers no hope. A different Jesus offers no true joy. And it only offers false peace. This is why, my dear friends, that the whole Muslim world, though they may espouse respect for the prophet Jesus, they have no peace with God. Because even though they say he might be a prophet who is to be revered and respected as all good prophets, but yet because they deny that he is the Son of God, they have completely undone their own hope of eternal life. As a matter of fact, they have forfeited the only way to peace with God. And that's why Muslim after Muslim after Muslim that I've met personally, and I'm sure you can attest to this, can never tell you that they have assurance of salvation. And even in Muslim theology, many Muslims are convinced that dying in jihad is the only way to have full assurance that you will enter paradise when you die. I mean, think of the diabolical lies of Islam at that point. That blowing yourself and women and children and innocent people, blowing them up at, you know, some falafel shop in Jerusalem or wherever, that that is the way to paradise. That is just, talk about the serpent deceiving someone. The serpent has so deceived them into thinking that if they commit suicide, they will inherit paradise where they will gain eternal sex, eternal alcohol, eternal debauchery, eternal feet. You know, it's just like a big party. And that is what Islam teaches. 
The second thing is not just a falling away from the orthodox preaching of the cross and preaching of Christ, but also falling away from true spirituality. Look at what he says. He says, if they come preaching a different spirit which you have not received. You know, it's amazing that being spiritual is, is in vogue today, isn't it? It's amazing what you can find on one college campus. How many forms of spirituality. Everyone is spiritual. I remember preaching there at UNT some time back, and a guy came up, and he had a foxtail clipped to his pants like it was his tail. Okay? <laughs> and he came in, and he came in and swearing and very hostile and very, very adamant that, you know, obviously I was, I was wrong and bad and evil for preaching Christ and that he was a Buddhist. And he was, that was his spirituality. And uh, that gentleman ended up changing his tone. But on any given day, you can walk onto a college campus and meet Buddhists and Wiccans and people that are into the occult and witchcraft and Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses and Muslims and agnostics and, and New Agers and every pseudo-Christian cult under the sun is thriving on college campuses, thriving, just devouring the faith and the worldview and the, and the philosophical outlook of young men and women all across the world. It's amazing, really, if you think about it. But, you know, true spirituality is born out of the Spirit of God Himself. True spirituality can only be accomplished through regeneration. That is when you become a spiritual person. Prior to that, Scripture tells us that you are dead in your sins, you are dead in your trespasses and sins, and that no amount of spiritual jargon and spiritual language and spiritual communities will do any good for you. It's not enough. As so many people say today, I am spiritual. I am very spiritual. What does that mean if it doesn't mean that you have been born by the Spirit of God and that you are now a child of God it means that you are under deception, and the spirit that you are adopting is not the spirit of God, but Scripture would say it is a spirit of fear. It is a spirit of bondage. It is a spirit of doubt, and it is a spirit ultimately, Romans 8, of condemnation, a spirit of condemnation. Ultimately, all of these different types of spiritualities cannot save, and they cannot sanctify and so this is in complete antithesis to Paul's ministry. Let me remind you of first, or 2 Corinthians 3.18, that Paul's new covenant ministry of the Spirit was enough to save you and to sanctify you, to transform you. Listen, if there's no transformation in your life, then there's no salvation. The Spirit does not just regenerate you, invade you, indwell you, and seal you, and then leave you just as you are. No, the Spirit invades our hearts and gets to work. He gets to work convicting us, leading us, guiding us, convicting us of our sin, sanctifying us, making us more holy, purifying us. That is what the Spirit does. And the Spirit has a goal. God, the Spirit of God's goal is to sanctify you so that you look like something at the end when He's done with you. And that, what He wants you to look like, is the image of Jesus Christ. He says in 3.18, We all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. You see, 
When you're in the new covenant and you walk up to a spiritual mirror, as it were, you see the glory of the Lord emanating off of you. Why? Because you are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. That's true spirituality. True spirituality is results in Christ-likeness. And there is no spirituality apart from that. It's a falling away from orthodoxy. It's a falling away from true spirituality. And it is a falling away from the gospel, to put it plainly. Now, isn't it interesting, but that one commentator says, Jesus, spirit, and gospel. These are an apt summary for Christianity. That's what Christianity is all about. And here, they are on the brink of falling away from the gospel. And that is detrimental. These, all of these terms need to be taken together. Jesus is the gospel, we could say. There is no gospel without Jesus. The Spirit is not only the Spirit of Jesus, but it's also the Spirit that is promised to us in the gospel. Jesus says in John 16, verse 16, that He would send us His Spirit. And guess what the Spirit will do? He will send us right back to Jesus. He will point us right back to the cross work of Christ. Jesus says, He will take of mine and He will give it to you. And then He will disclose what is mine and He will disclose it to you. The Spirit is here to glorify Christ. The Spirit is a Christ-centered Spirit. And that's what He does. He points us right back to Jesus Christ to glorify Him. It is the Spirit promised in the Gospel And the gospel, therefore, is the good news of redemption through the Son, the good news that pardons our iniquities, forgives us of our sins, cleanses us of our transgressions, gives us the very righteousness of Christ, gives us a foreign righteous, an alien righteous, a righteousness that you don't have, a righteousness that you can't muster up in yourself. This is the gospel, and this is why it's so good news. And no wonder, no wonder that... The enemy hates it so. He hates it. He tries to undo it. Let's focus here for a moment on the gospel because you have a lot of gospel language going, being thrown around in the church today, right? It's all about the gospel, the gospel. And that's right. It is all about the gospel. But let me tell you something. We have to know the gospel and we have to get the gospel right. And we can never err on what is the gospel, The gospel is not humanitarianism. The gospel is not therapy or spiritual therapy or psychology. That is not what the gospel is. The gospel, the apostolic gospel, cannot change. This is good news for us, brothers and sisters, because our gospel, like our God, does not change. It is the same It cannot be reinvented, it cannot be reimagined, it cannot be renovated, it cannot be replaced. That is what the gospel is. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. There is no other name under heaven whereby we must be saved but the name of Jesus. That is the gospel. In all other forms, liberal gospels, social gospels, psychology gospels, therapeutic gospels, whatever it is, they never deal with the problems that men really have. Man has a huge problem, and it's not his marriage. It's not his finances. 
It's not the people at work. It's not the things that happened in the family years ago. Your biggest problem is sin. Sin. But brothers and sisters, listen, we live in a humanistic world where sin itself is being undermined. The very foundations of morality, isn't it ironic? The very foundations of morality in this nation alone are being eroded. Why? Because sin is being diminished. It is a low view of depravity. Matter of fact, the humanist manifesto would say there is no sin. There's only behavior. And some behavior is good, and some behavior is bad. Now, on an apologetical level, we can instantly spot out the contradiction. Well, how can you have good and bad if you don't know what bad is? (laughs) Because of the erosion of sin, as an anthropological reality, anthropology just means the study of man. What are we composed of? That there are different aspects of what man is. The moral foundations and the moral consciousness of man is being diminished and it is evaporating before our very eyes where no evil is out of bounds. David Wells, who I suggest you all read, David Wells in his book, Losing Our Virtue, he points this mindset out that is now dominating modern man, this assessment of sin, that sin is no longer guilt because you've broken laws. That's archaic and old-fashioned. Today, sin is equivalent to feeling something, shame. Listen to what he says. He says, in the psychiatric literature as well in the wider culture, the transition from the language of shame or to the language of shame from the language of guilt signals the secularization of moral life. What what it suggests is that any moral discomfort, any inward pains, that are the result of our actions should be construed as relational problems, not moral problems. They should be resolved on horizontal planes of psychology, a psychological understanding, rather than against the vertical realm of theological knowledge. It is we who will dissolve our own shame, not God. It is we who will do it by our own techniques. For when, when all is said and done, what is awry is simply that we are viewing oursel- how we are viewing ourselves. And that's right. You know what David Wells goes on to say in this book that I just wanted to keep quoting and quoting and quoting? Is that all of this amounts to autosoteric philosophies. Self-salvation. You think you can save yourself by what you do. You think that you've done this thing and this is wrong, and if you just do this, then you will be okay. But we know that salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is not personal moral reform. Salvation is not just correcting behavior. That's not what salvation is. That's called moralism. It's not just, I used to look at all the bad movies and listen to all the bad music and use all the bad language, and now I listen to all the clean music, the Christian music, use the Christian language and watch the Christian movies like Facing the Giants or whatever. That makes me a Christian because I do all the Christian stuff and I talk like a Christian. That's not what makes you a Christian. David, uh, David Wells also wrote a book on conversion and how that we can never get away from the necessity of conversion. You must be 
converted to Christ. You cannot be born a Christian. Even though you were raised in a Christian home, my friend, you were not born a Christian. Even though you might have been homeschooled, even though you might have went to private school, raised in a, in a, in a church, and around here, if I want to be relevant, raised in a Baptist church your whole life. It doesn't matter. That doesn't mean redemption. That doesn't mean salvation. That doesn't mean that you have believed in the gospel. And that is not the gospel. If people tell you all you need to do is sign a card or walk the aisle, pray a little prayer, and now you're a Christian, that is not the gospel. This is what the gospel is. The gospel is, first of all, historic. It is about the person and work of Jesus Christ in time and space. It is also transformative because it changes your life. It is also Christ-centered, God-centered, and ultimately Trinitarian. Trinitarian. In terms of the Trinity, the gospel originated in the eternal decrees of God, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 9 through 11. It is redemptive, and it is a redemptive pact that the Godhead made as the Father adopts us, the Son redeems us, and the Spirit applies that redemption to us. In terms of our redemption, brothers and sisters, the, the gospel is a promise. It is the fulfillment of a promise. God promised the gospel long ago. I have here a quote, or excuse me, a reference to Genesis. That's where the gospel began. It began being promised in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where God promises the victory of the seed of the woman over the serpent. What a beautiful promise. And that's why Paul says, if you move away from the gospel, you own or you deserve and you merit God's anathema, his curse. Because it's the only thing that can save your soul for all eternity. It's not just false messages, but let's get to the teachers themselves, the false teachers. He says, if anybody comes to you preaching. So that's the, that's the issue with false teacher. So how do people fall away? They listen to false messages and they follow false teachers. And it's interesting, but that these false teachers were trying to paint Paul as the false teacher, if you would. Look at verse 5. He says, for I consider myself not in the least inferior to the most eminent apostles. Or they were trying to criticize his speech, as we'll see. They were trying to criticize his ministry. They were trying to undermine his credentials, as we'll go on to see. But you know what's amazing about false teachers is that they will get people to believe anything. They will get people to believe anything. I mean, think about it. Just give you a tangible example. Just right down the street here at Kenneth Copeland's church. First, Kenneth Copeland is advising his congregation not to take vaccinations because there's some sort of, you know, evil connotation to it. But now that everybody's got measles, he's telling everybody to take vaccinations. I mean, just the contra that's just a, this is a token of the real deception, which is more theological, obviously. But just look at the blind devotion. They will follow false teachers blindly. And it doesn't matter how much you explain to them the historical, the, the, the historical shadiness of, their, of the origin of their beliefs. You can talk about Joseph Smith and his immorality. You can talk about the, Charles Russell and his ignorance of the Greek language. 
You could talk about the Campbellite movement. You could talk about all of that, and people will look at you and blindly swear their allegiance to false teachers. It's because they're under a deception. It's because they're blind. They're blind to what false teachers are all about. And this is the way that it works with Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses and Seventh-day Adventists, the, the uh, International Church of Christ, Oneness Pentecostals, Unitarians. And my list just goes on and on and on, but I won't read it all to you. But it's amazing. Prosperity preachers, like I mentioned, Kenneth Copeland deceive people by their idolatrous lust for money. And that is all that is at the bottom of it. That's it. Titus chapter 1, verse 10. Listen to Titus' words here, or Paul's words to Titus. He says, For there are many rebellious men. They are empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. Paul really had it out for the Judaizers, you know. He says, Who must be silenced. They are upsetting entire families teaching things that, should not, that they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. Greed is at the behind all of their false doctrine. And so all of these kinds of folks are like that. T.D. Jakes, Kenneth Copeland, Benny Hinn, Joe Osteen, TBN, The 700 Club, Joyce Myers, Rick Warren, Ed Young, Rob Bell, these men are just deceiving people with their words. I mean, look, Joel Osteen and Rick Warren have both said that Mormonism is a denominational debate. Okay? You say, well, yeah, but Rick Warren got invited to, I don't care where he got, I don't care if he got invited to go see the Pope. I mean, pardon the sarcasm, but you know what I mean? I don't care if he goes to be, go and speak at, you know, Pick your seminary or pick your conference, your popular conference. It doesn't matter. When you say that Mormonism as well as Judaism is nothing other than a denominational difference, I don't know, but to me, it smells like a duck. It quacks like a duck. It walks like a duck. It's probably a duck. It gets worse. Michael Horton put out a devastating article against Rick Warren that very few people even want to read but where he details that Rick Warren actually invites Mormons and Jews who reject Jesus as the Messiah into his training camps to train his pastoral staff. You want to talk about contradicting 2 John verse 9, giving them a greeting, welcoming them into your home, welcoming them right into the church, right into the heart of the church to, to influence the leaders. So many. And they spiral out of control, false teachers do. Rob Bell went from his emergent discourse of a low ecclesiology and everything that follows with that to now openly embracing homosexuality as a non-sin issue. To use his words, that's just the way the world is now. <laughs> yeah. And people still read his books and they play his NUMA videos at college camp, Baptist college campuses. It's really amazing. And it's not just the false teachers, mind you, but it's also those that hear them. It's also those that hear them. And this problem has been going on long. You know about itchy ear listeners, right? They have itching ears. They want to heap up teachers for themselves. But this has been going on for a very long time and there's nothing new under the sun. God has seen those types of people and those types of churches long ago. 
Let me read to you Isaiah chapter 30, verse 9. This is a devastating criticism of the people of God during this time in their captivity. He says, this is a rebellious people, false sons, sons who refuse to listen to the instruction of the Lord. They say to the seers, you must not see visions, and to the prophets, you must not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth words pleasant words, prophesy to us illusions, amazing depravity. The people are asking for false doctrine. And that's how I feel sometimes dealing with a person who's blindly following a false teacher. They are asking for more false doctrine. Don't give us the instruction of God. Don't instruct us out of the the pure knowledge of God. Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 30, listen to this in a similar tone. He says, an appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets are prophesying falsely, and the priests are ruling on their authority, and my people love to have it so. You want to talk about a maddening situation. You're talking about a people, you're trying to snap them out of their delusions that they're in, and they want the delusion. That's when you know we are at the mercy of God to open the mind, to open the heart. I'll tell you what, when I talk to somebody that used to be in a false religion or in a, in a cult or, or, or following one of these false teachers and then they snap out of that, I just look at that as a miracle. Because in their own depravity, they would remain in that deception their whole life. This is the influence of false teachers. And these false teachers are now trying to get the church away from Paul so that they can assume the authority, so that they can get the following. That's the way that it always works. Mormons come to your door. Oh, you grew up as a you grew up in the Baptist church. You're disenfran- you know, you're disenchanted with what happened there. Well, let, it, let me tell you about what we have going on. And then they just try to dissuade you away from orthodoxy, away from the gospel. The church and its discernment was at an all-time low because they were open to false messages, they were open to false teachers, and they were looking at false credentials. Look at verse 6 here in 2 Corinthians. He says, But even if I am unskilled in speech, yet I am not so in knowledge. In fact, in every way we have made this evident to you in all things. In all things. It's amazing, but that false preachers, false teachers pride themselves on false credentials. And actually, the irony there is that they're actually disqualified from the the one essential credential that they need, which is knowledge, knowledge of the truth. Remember Isaiah's words, they refuse to listen to the instruction of the Lord. With them, the proverb is fulfilled. Proverb 122, how long, O naive ones, will you love simple-mindedness? Being simple-minded is not a virtue. It's not a virtue to say, oh, you know, I'm just not into all that doctrine stuff. I'm just a real simple person. That's not a virtue. That is actually, Paul says at the end of 1 Corinthians, that's to your shame if you don't have knowledge. Oh, my desire, I would love to see every man, woman, and child in this place who professes Christ to know something of the doctrine of justification, to be able to tell me what does propitiation mean? 
to be able to tell me the nature of sanctification, to be able to give me three verses on the deity of Christ off the top of your head. Simple-mindedness is simply not a virtue. And Paul says, look, although, yes, I might be unskilled in speech because that was the game that they were playing, there is a concession, but there's also a conflict. Yes, he says, I may not be the most eloquent, and that's fine. Remember earlier on in the letter, chapter 10, they said his speech is actually, actually despicable. It's so bad. It's, it's almost hard to listen to. He doesn't sound very good. He's not that great of a speaker, communicator. He, he, wouldn't do, he wouldn't be a good motivational speaker. Let's put it that way. But see, that's what they were impressed with, and especially in the Corinthian culture. If you look at the background where the Corinthian you know, a city was there, and it was among the, it was among the different Greek cities where, uh, uh, where the providences, where the, the orators would come, and they would speak on the street corners, and they would present their philosophies, and they would show off their eloquence. You could be easily impressed by that. But Paul says, okay, if that's how you want to peg me as not being a good communicator, you want to attack my style, that's fine, but one thing you can attack, and that is my knowledge of the gospel. But not so in knowledge, he says, yet I am not so in knowledge. In fact, listen to what he says, in every way we have made this evident to you in all things. I like the word evident, because the word evident comes from the Greek word phanereo, which means to manifest. And what Paul is saying, look, my depth and breadth of knowledge, my grasp of the gospel is evident. And he doesn't say it's not just evident. He says it's evident in every way. In every way that I can make it evident to you, I do. And, in, and, and pertaining to what? In all things. So it is also not just also transparent, but it's also comprehensive in everything, in every area of the Christian life, Paul was the type of minister that could educate you. And not very many people want that kind of minister. If we're honest about ourselves and the state of the, of the modern church, not many people care when they come into a church, can this pastor teach me the Bible? They ask, can he make me laugh? Is he charismatic enough? Is he good-looking enough? Is he funny, right? Um, does he make me feel good? Does he have a therapeutic tone in his voice? Okay. Listen, God chose Jonathan Edwards as the spearhead of the Great Awakening. And Jonathan Edwards, one of the things about Jonathan Edwards that was known is that he wasn't a great speaker. Matter of fact, he was very monotone. He just spoke at an even kill level. He probably didn't even shout and yell as much as I do. I get kind of excited. I'm sorry. I'm not, I'm not Jonathan Edwards. Either oratorically or theologically. I'm not, never will be. But amazing to me that God chose a man like that to be one of the lightning rods of the Great Awakening and through the ministry of Edwards, as he just dispensed year after year after year, the pure knowledge of God, the fear of God, the Word of God to his people, God was pleased to unleash salvation 
on a scale and on a level that perhaps we have not seen since. Just amazing to me who God was pleased to use. Now, that's not all the time. We know about Spurgeon, right? Uh, my wife just read me a poem from somebody's song. Spurgeon, he's preached so good, he says he could, he could preach on the dirt and you wouldn't be bored, okay? He was so eloquent and so interesting and so dynamic and so, and so just incredibly uh, well-read. He was a Renaissance man. They said about Spurgeon, so while we're on this auto, you know, bio, biographical note here, they said about Spurgeon that Spurgeon would read everything. He would read a book on systematic theology and then pick up a book on how to build a boat. And then somehow he would incorporate that into his message. Absolute genius. And he preached all of his sermons on one page of notes smaller than this. And he wrote more than any Christian that ever lived in the history of the church. Amazing man. Man, let's close in prayer because I can't compare to Spurgeon. Paul's ministry was the new covenant ministry prophesied in the Old Testament. You're talking about knowledge. Let me read to you Jeremiah 3, verse 15. For there God predicts what ministers He will raise up. Then I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with their personality. No. He will, they will feed you with knowledge and understanding. They will open the mind to the truth and lay you bare before the throne of God so that you will have to reckon with the Word of God. The new covenant minister is also a mirror of God's own zeal for the church. We saw this earlier in Paul, that he was zealous for the church like a father who is going to present a bride. Ezekiel 34, 15, I will feed my flock, says the Lord, and I will lead them to rest. God's desire is to nurture you, to feed you, to grow you, to give you sustenance so that you can latch onto it for the rest of the week. You can just come back to this sermon or whatever else you're feeding on. Christ Himself, He is set forth as the messianic, prototypical shepherd of the sheep, the over-shepherd of all shepherds, who is the greatest example of what a shepherd should be and do. Ezekiel 37, verse 24, My servant David will be king over them. That's Christ. David's been dead for hundreds of years. That is talking about the Messiah. They will all have one shepherd, and they will walk in my ordinances, and they will keep my statutes and observe them. What is the point of all preaching, teaching, doctrine, knowledge, is it just to be smart? No, it's to obey. All theology is for is for your practical, everyday life. The reason why you want to grow in the knowledge of God is so that you grow in grace, so that you grow in your affections towards Christ, so that you grow in your affections toward your brother and sister in the Lord. That's what all knowledge should produce. And if it's not producing that, there is a disconnect, a sore disconnect. There is an imbalance that God never intended so that the more that you grow in the knowledge of God, let's face it, let's sum it up, the more you should grow in love. God's wisdom, God's knowledge should lead to more of God's love 
in our life. And if it doesn't, then we need to repent and say, God, help me. I don't just want to be a know-it-all in the church. I don't just want to be filled with facts. But then my life is filled with fraudulence and facades. And my holiness is skin deep. And my commitment and my devotion to Christ, it wavers. And I'm a child. I'm tossed to and fro carried around by every wind of doctrine, then I can say doctrine has not profited you. You have not taken hold of it for the purpose for which it was taking hold of you. And that is to conform you more and more into the image of His Son, to make you more holy, to make you more godly, to make you more resolved to follow Christ, to make you more passionate about the beauty of Christ, to love Him more, to adore Him more. If that is not what's going on, then you are not tasting You're just testing. You're just sampling. But it's just not really digesting. It's not going in. You're not internalizing the Word of God as you ought to. I pray that we would all internalize the Word of God so that it would produce the the obedience of faith that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 1, verse 17. Let's pray together. Father, Lord, make us such people... I thank you for your church today. Thank you for their endurance. Thank you for their patience, Lord. I pray you would reward them. And I pray for every one of us, Lord. We live in a world that is saturated with false teaching. And sadly, it is saturated with false teachers at every turn. And so that we have to be discerning. And we have to be on guard. And we can't just take every spiritual advice from anybody that we think is speaking about the Christian faith. But we need to be discerning. And so God, give us ears to hear. Lord, give us the proper anointing from the Spirit so that we'd in need of no one to teach us that we would know and that we would walk in all truth. Thank you that you are our teacher. Thank you that you ultimately are our shepherd and that your desire for us as your sheep is that you would feed us, that you would sustain us, that you would satisfy us. Lord, will you come and satisfy us? Help us. We're hungry. And if we're not hungry, we pray to be hungry. For Christ's sake, in Jesus' name, amen.